All right, good morning, Trace. How are we doing this morning? Everybody feeling good? Hey, one more time. It's okay to celebrate a couple times. Let's give it up for all the fathers in the room. Thank you, dads, for every single thing that you do. And we really do appreciate you. We honor you today. I'm a father of four. And so it's always fun to celebrate this day with my kids, with my wife, and excited that you're celebrating with us. So thanks so much for being here. I do want to give you a heads up. This is not a Father's Day message. This is not going to be a sermon for the dads in the room. And because that's the case, I do want to take a moment and just say a couple things if I can. I just want to speak into the father's uh, in this room right right now, maybe those of you watching online, by the way, Ron Pennington, if you're watching, I love you, Dad. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, but here's what I would tell you. Um, there's a influence. There's a unique influence that you have that cannot be matched by anyone or anything else. And so I want to encourage you today to use that influence well. I want to encourage you today to know that your time, your presence, and your words, they matter more than you think they do. They really do. And so I want to give you three things that I have personally found that are incredibly beneficial. I don't always do these things well, but I've found them to be incredibly beneficial. I'm going to give you three things of what it looks like to be an intentional father. And before I do, let me even just say this. Some of you maybe potentially feel like that you have struck out at times when it comes to being an intentional father. And I would encourage you to keep getting back up to the plate. Keep stepping back up to the plate. And if you don't hear anything else I say, remember this. It is never too late to be an intentional father. Never. It's never too late to be an intentional father. So here's my three things. Number one, put your kids to bed as long as you possibly can. I'm serious. Put your kids to bed as long as they will allow you to put them to bed. And sit down on the bed with them. Lay down on the bed with them. And just process through their day with them. Help them to understand that you're there, that you're available, that your presence is important to them. Uh, it's important to you that your presence is available to them. And I want to tell you to help them to know that you're a safe place. If they need to voice some doubts, if they need to ask some questions about faith, that you're a safe place. And even if you don't have all the answers, you'll find the answers with them. One of the questions that I've asked my kids from time to time during those moments of putting them to bed is this, how can dad show up for you more right now? And I say that very specifically and intentionally. How can dad show up for you more right now? And I have been blown away on the answers that I get. So that's number one, put your kids to bed as long as they'll allow you. Number two, use your words. And I say that for a couple reasons. I say that for a couple reasons because sometimes what we have a tendency to do, and I think dads are, or guys are more guilty about this than, than ladies, we may feel something, we may see something, but too often we hold our words. And if there's ever something noteworthy in your kid's life, if you see them do something that you think is worth mentioning to them, that you saw that, like you, you see something in them, don't hold those words back. And maybe even from time to time, you just think to yourself, the spirit of God convicts you and you're like, man, I so appreciate this about one of my kids. Let them know, do not, don't ever hold those words. Use your words. Third thing, show them Jesus. Show them Jesus. Don't just talk about Jesus, but show them Jesus. If there's an opportunity to serve with them, then serve with them. If they want to read their Bible, then read it with them. My son Jonathan came home from middle school camp a few weeks back. He said, Dad, I want to start reading through the Bible. I'm going to start in Genesis. I'm like, let's start in Matthew. Um, and we are, and we're reading a chapter of the Bible every night, and I'm just discussing it. I'm letting him ask questions. And it's, it's incredible. Show them Jesus. Don't just talk about Jesus. Show them Jesus. If there's a need that rises, maybe in the in your neighborhood, maybe somebody's going through a difficult time, pull them aside and say, hey, I think we could do something to bless them. Show them Jesus. Number one, put them to bed as long as they'll allow you to. Number two, what was number two? Use your words. <laughs> yeah, I told you I don't do this as often as I should. 
<laughs> and number three, show them Jesus. Let me pray for us and then I'll jump into my sermon. God, thank you for today. Thanks for all the dads in the room. And God, I pray that, man, even if they don't get anything else out of this sermon, if maybe they were just reminded in this moment that even if they felt like they struck out, just step back up to the plate, keep swinging. God, I pray that, that you help them to see that you're with them, that they're not alone in this. They don't have to have it all figured out. But being an intentional father, man, I don't know if there's anything that can compare to that. And so God, just uh, partner with all of us. We're gonna need your help in that. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are continuing in a series called What Made Jesus Mad? And one of the reasons why we felt it necessary to have these conversations is because if we want a strong relationship with Jesus, it probably makes sense that we would learn about his emotions. And since anger is not an emotion that we often attribute to Jesus, it's worth taking a deeper dive on the subject. I mean, think about any relationship that you want to grow in. If you don't know what makes that person angry, I mean, think about this with your spouse really quick. If you don't know what makes them angry and you just keep doing that over and over, it's probably not going to build a strong relationship. So understanding what made Jesus angry, among other things that we need to learn about Jesus, I think it's important to develop and strengthen the relationship that we have with him. And so the past couple of weeks, we've covered subjects like hypocrisy. We've covered subjects like what it looks like when somebody puts an obstacle between those that don't know Jesus and Jesus, like that, that makes Jesus mad. We shouldn't put obstacles and make it hard for people to get to God. And like I said last week, we talked about hypocrisy, but what I wanna talk about today is the subject of legalism. And legalism is defined like this. It's a doctrinal position emphasizing a system of rules and regulations for achieving both salvation and spiritual growth. Now, the immediate question that you may have is, well, why does that make Jesus mad? To which we will unfold together this morning. But I would say my quick response to that is because it's in opposition to the doctrine of grace. I mean, there are only two paths, right? There's either the path that we have to work for God's forgiveness and love and redemption, or Jesus did it for us. And I would tell you that even though over the years, the church has gotten this wrong to some extent, it's not because the Bible is not clear on it, because I can assure you the Bible is clear on this. Let me read to you from Galatians chapter two. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And he's specifically referencing the Mosaic law from the old covenant. We're gonna talk about that today. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Now, one may wonder, why has this become so confusing to people if the Bible is so clear about it? To which I would tell you, well, it depends on how you read your Bible. It depends on how well you understand your Bible. Because we have two different covenants in God's word. We have the covenant, oh, thank you. Can you guys give it up for Julie? What a blessing. I must have sounded a little dry there, which is why you brought that up. Thank you. <clears throat> I am battling a little bit of a cold, so if you want to pray for me, pray for me. So in our Bibles, we have two covenants. And underneath one covenant, there was a different way of approaching God. But Jesus came to give us something brand new, a brand new covenant. But what we have a tendency to, to do at times is bring the old underneath the new. And if this is confusing you a little bit, I would just tell you this. The approach 
that people had in the old covenant, specifically the covenant that God made with the Israelites, was one that would lean towards legalism. And you may think, well, I thought legalism was bad. I thought that was a bad thing. No, it was what God knew he needed to do in this particular context in this given amount of time. And so God established a covenant to where you had to follow rules and you had to follow regulations and you had to follow this kind of systematic way of religion to have a relationship with him. And we'll get more into that. But if we don't understand fully what Jesus came and accomplished by fulfilling the old covenant law, we will start to mix and match these covenants, causing us to approach legalism once again in how we approach God. Let me show you something again in Galatians chapter three. He says, for all, this is Paul, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now that's pretty strong language. And if you're not careful, like I don't want you to hear something that Paul's not saying. I don't want you to hear something I'm not saying this morning. But Paul's calling the works of the law, a curse. Why was it a curse? Well, stay with me. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything. Everybody say everything. Everything written in the book of the law. Because that was the system. That was the process. You gotta do it all. If you come short, even just a little bit, you come short to all of it. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. In other words, if you follow that systematic path to God, then you've got to do it all. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why was it a curse? Because it was impossible. Trying to live out the old covenant law, all, this, all these systems, all these regulations, these rules, and to do them perfectly was impossible. And because it was impossible, it felt like a curse. Let me read that again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. Now, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible, you may start wondering, well, isn't it all the Bible? I mean, aren't we supposed to read it all and do it all? To which I would say, no. If you do everything the old covenant says to do, you're going to prison. So what do we do with this? Like, how do, we, how do we approach this? Well, first I would tell you this. First I would tell you that the entire Bible is God-breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit, useful in all things. But it doesn't mean that we obey all of it. And if this is new for somebody for the first time, this might be blowing your mind, so stay with me. When you have two covenants, you have one covenant that was established for a specific amount of time with a specific group of people, the Israelites, and it was a means that came to an end because God came and did something entirely new through Jesus. Jesus fulfilled what was the curse because the curse was, we can't do this. This systematic way of approaching God and doing this with perfection, it is impossible to which we would may think, if again, if you didn't have the broader understanding, if you didn't know where this goes later, you would think, well, that seems like God is unfair. It seems like God is setting us up for failure, that he would put us underneath a system that is perfect that nobody could fulfill, to which I would say it's only unfair if you don't know that God knew it was a means that came to an end, that he was going to use this pathway of perfection to show you that you couldn't do it yourself. That's why you needed Jesus. That's why you needed Jesus. But this path of perfection, it was a legalistic approach to God. And again, you may think, well, I thought legalistic, being legalistic is bad. No, no, no. Ready? And I call this the principle of, it was the first let me say it right. First principles. 
I call this the first principles. In other words, understand this and the rest of it will make a little bit more sense. So the first principle that I would tell you that comes out of the old covenant is this. God knew exactly what he needed to do when he needed to do it to get us to Jesus. And the reason why I think that first principle is so important because I would even confess to you as a pastor, and honestly, I think more pastors need to confess to you what I'm about to confess to you, and that is this. I have a hard time reconciling how God did some things in the old covenant. I have a hard time reconciling why God did some things the way he did some things in the old covenant. But if I rest on the first principle of what I know to be true, God knew exactly what he needed to do when he needed to do it to get us to Jesus, then I'm okay. I don't need to understand it all. But what I do know is that he doesn't want us to take something that was old and bring it with us into the new. And when we do that, and Christians and churches have been doing that since Jesus came back from the dead, we start having this legalistic performance approach to God again that Jesus came to put on its head, to do something completely new, to fulfill the covenant that none of us could fill on our, on our own efforts. And because the old covenant did follow a track of legalism, and if you don't have a healthy separation between the old covenant and the new covenant, then you will allow that old system to drift into the new. And this is why, again, churches and Christians still get this wrong to, the day, to this day. And I would tell you the Apostle Paul actually wrote about this extensively because he maybe knew better than anybody, being, a, being once a Pharisee himself, he knew better than anybody that if you don't understand how Jesus fulfilled the old covenant and he came to put an end to the old covenant, then you will miss how Jesus started something brand new, this brand new, better covenant that's based on faith and not performance. And if you miss that, you will miss the beauty of God's grace. And you will find yourself trying to accomplish something that Jesus already accomplished on your behalf. And that legalistic approach to faith, it won't fill you with peace, but it will overwhelm you with pressure. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You see, the subject of the old covenant carrying over into the new covenant was actually one of the biggest problems that the early church faced. You see, what was happening is as people were coming to faith in Jesus, some of the, some of the guys that were Jewish before and they came to faith in Christ, they were telling all the Gentiles, which were non-Jewish people, that, hey, yeah, you can come to faith in Jesus and, and, and grace is awesome, but we also need you to follow the Mosaic law. You, you also need to follow all these rules and regulations. That's how you become a full Christian. But that wasn't the message of the early apostles. And where this kind of all came to a head is when Paul and Barnabas were up in Antioch, which is where they were first called Christians. They were up in Antioch and they were bringing the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus to all these Gentiles. And these Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ outside of the Mosaic law. And then the guys down in Jerusalem, specifically the Jewish men down in Jerusalem, got word of this. And they were like, whoa, 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 time out, time out, time out. You're telling us that you're only allowing them to believe in Jesus and that's it? That's all they have to do and they can be saved? No, 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 that's not, no, we gotta take them back to the Mosaic Law. And specifically, and I don't know why they set this one apart, but specifically, they, we need to make sure that they're getting circumcised. Who wants that job? Circumcising adult men, right? Uh, last time, last service, I said that, and somebody went, woo! And I'm like, whoa, like that's not, <laughs> like there's other opportunities where you could have done the woo, but that wasn't it. <laughs> 
And so what happens is, you know, the church leaders, specifically apostles, they're like, okay, we need to have a, we need to have a meeting here. And it's called the Council of Jerusalem. We actually see this in Acts chapter 15. And it's like, we need to make sure that specifically the Jewish people that are trying to take this old way of doing things and putting it on the shoulders of people that are coming, faith in, coming to faith in Christ, we need to make sure they know that God has done something brand new, which means we don't need to carry the old into the new. Let me show you what happens in Acts 15. Peter actually gets up and speaks. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke? I want you to remember this language, okay? We're gonna come back to it a few times. Why do you try to test God which is interesting that he says it that way, by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. In other words, Peter is appealing to the Jewish people in the audience, guys, listen to me, listen to me. You know we've never even been able to fulfill this. You know how hard it was for us to feel like we've measured up to the law. So why are you trying to take something that was old and put it onto something that God has actually brought and, and made brand new? No, he says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. In other words, why are you trying to put people back underneath a legalistic way of life that we ourselves couldn't fulfill? And honestly, church, if you, like this is where this gets really messy because if you've ever been in kind of one of those systematic ways of approaching God, systematic religion where you had a lot of rules, you had a lot of regulations, you've got to do these things and if you don't do these things, you can't be a Christian and God is disappointed, to, disappointed in you. And then what happens? With time, you learn that the guys that are teaching you these really strict rules and regulations aren't even following through on them themselves. And that wound, man, that wound goes deep. You see, when rules become greater than the redemption of Jesus, it will leave people in spiritual ruin. Legalism will always be a contradiction to God's love under the new covenant of his grace. I wanna read to you a passage of scripture that you've likely read before, but I want us to approach it differently this morning. Because when I read it this week, and I was preparing for this sermon, I thought to myself, why did Jesus feel it necessary to say this? Well, we're getting ready to read. Why did Jesus feel it necessary to say this? Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me. Stop looking around, what everybody else is doing. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll be the person that gives you rest. Take my yoke, there's that language again. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The reason I would suggest to you that Jesus felt it necessary to say these particular words is because people had become convinced that faithfulness to God, <laughs> it wasn't easy. A relationship with God didn't feel restful. It didn't feel like a blessing. It felt like a burden. You know why legalism makes Jesus so angry? Because he gave his life up so that we didn't have to live underneath that any longer. Jesus isn't angry about how God used to 
do things in the old covenant, that would be a contradiction against, against himself. He's angry when we take this approach to God where it's like, do these things, say these things, act this way, perform this way, and put it on top of his grace because he came to turn it on its head. He came to extend grace so that you didn't feel like you had to accomplish something that he already accomplished for you. Because when you fall underneath that system, you don't feel peace. All you feel is pressure. But that's not what Paul talks about in Romans chapter five. He talks about something that's just the opposite. He's therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace, not pressure. Before I read on, can I just ask, what do you feel more of today? You feel pressure to perform? Pressure to do things, more things for God so that you don't feel like a disappointment? Or do you feel the peace of Christ that he says transcends all understanding? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I would argue that if you're here today and you think this is not really an issue for me, I completely get the difference between the old and new covenants, I completely get you know, the difference between God's grace and legalism and approaching God, understanding that we've already been forgiven, there's nothing we have to do on our own, and, you, and you're just processing through, like I get this here, and I, like, hey, thanks for preaching the message, but I'm good. I'd say, hold on a second. Because I would tell you that roots of legalism have worked their way into the majority of our lives. And one of the ways that I've described this is through what I would call performance faith. You might be surprised how often you use performance language when it comes to your own personal relationship with Jesus. Let me give you a few examples. Maybe you've said this before, I don't know how to pray good. Since it's Father's Day, dads, let me talk to you for a second. I can't tell you how many dads I've talked to that have said something like that. I don't pray because I don't know how to pray good. Let me tell you this, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as praying good. I promise you God's not up there keeping a tally where it's like, oh, he said hallelujah, point one. Oh, he said Shekinah glory. Hey, that was a good one from the old covenant. 10 points for you, guy. He just wants you to talk to him. Maybe this is a good place to start. God, teach me to pray. I'm not sure what to say. God honors that kind of sincere prayer a lot more than the people that feel like they've got to entertain or impress the people around them when they're praying. Maybe you've said something like this, I need to learn how to read my Bible better, performance language. I don't go to church enough, performance language. I need to give more, performance language. Now, is the sentiment behind all of these things good? Yes. Are they important? Yes. Are they important for a meaningful relationship with Jesus? Absolutely. But the motivation is wrong. When we approach a relationship with God with language like more and better and not good enough and I'm failing and I need to work harder at, that's roots of legalism. We are getting caught up in the very thing, the same kind of performance-based faith that Jesus came to turn on its head. Jesus doesn't need you to perform for him. 
He wants you to do life with him. Let me say it again. Jesus does not need you to perform for him. He wants you to do life with him. And he made that crystal clear in the Gospel of John when he says, I'm not gonna leave you. I'm not gonna leave you alone. I'm gonna come to you. I'm gonna send the advocate, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, which means God is in you. God is in you. God doesn't want you to perform for him. He wants you to do life with him. And when you understand that, when you finally grasp the, fa <clears throat> the fact that he went to the greatest lengths necessary so that his spirit could come and abide in you, you will start to see, I don't need to perform for God. This is not about doing things for God. It's about doing life with God. Some of you today, Maybe need to spend an entire week on just thinking through that. How much do I feel like I'm constantly under pressure to do things for God instead of just living this life with God? Now, to be clear, we're not talking about obedience. We're not saying that you shouldn't be obedient. We're not watering down the importance of obedience. Do we want to be obedient to, what, to who Christ has called us to be? Yes, that's why he came to live in us. He wants to help us to navigate in and through the difficulties of this life. He wants to show us a better way of life. He didn't come just to give you eternal life. He came to show you a better way of life. Why? Because it's not only better for your soul, but it's gonna be better for the world around you. The more that you reflect, reflect the life and love of Jesus. And so how do we change our perspective? How do we stop living this performance-based faith for God and just start doing life with him? I do believe that language is important. I think language matters more than we give credence to sometimes. And so let me go back and read those same statements that I read to you earlier and reshape them a bit. I don't know how to pray good. I wanna spend time with God. I wanna talk to him. I wanna listen to him. If he came to live within me, that means he's probably got something to say. I just wanna learn how to talk to God. One of the things that I personally do that helps me to kind of revive my faith when I need it is pray to God out loud. Just talk out loud when nobody else is around because it reminds me that he's real. He's right there. A good place to do this is in your car. I need to learn how to read my Bible better. I mean, that's how you be a good Christian, right? Instead of, I want to read God's word because I want to know the heart of my heavenly father. If he's trying to accomplish something in and through me, not me accomplishing something. If he's trying to accomplish something in and through me, I want to know the heart of my heavenly father. I don't want to just get to know God. I want to show him. I want to spend time in his word. I don't go to church enough. I want to gather with God's people as often as possible. This was his idea, by the way, that we gather together. And you've heard me say this a lot. I believe that when we gather underneath the banner of God that his power and his presence is made more available. I wanna, I wanna be a part of that as often as I possibly can. I wanna gather with God's people as often as I can because I know that was a part of his plan, but I also, I feel like I'm blessed in return. I need to give more, to which I would say you do. I'm, we'll just move on. God, I wanna make sure that you own my, my heart. And I know... If there's anything that has the greatest chance of owning my heart and devotion, it's probably monetary in nature. I think you made that pretty clear in your covenant, new covenant. And so I wanna make sure that you own my heart. 
And maybe the best way for you to own my heart is to keep growing in generosity. Because if you don't know this, your heavenly father is the most generous person that you'll ever meet. He gave his only son for you. So God, I want to grow in generosity. Not because I feel like I need to give more because that's what good Christians do, but because that makes sure that you own my heart. Understanding how to do life with God will keep you from performing for God. Let me say it again. Understanding, having a deeper understanding of how to do life with God. He's in you. I ask them to keep that up there the whole time, the rest of the time while I'm preaching. I just want to keep pointing it out to He's in you. He's in you. And understanding how to do life with him will keep you from performing for him because he doesn't need you to. Let me close with this. Some of you, unfortunately, grew up under some version of Christianity that leaned in the direction of legalism. And you learned that instead of doing life with God, you were taught more of how to perform for God. And so when I talk about the difference between pressure and peace, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And the longer that you have felt the need to perform for God, the more likely that you have felt like a disappointment because you will never measure up. And I won't either. It's the beauty of God's grace. You don't have to. Now, have we made, all made some decisions that have likely been decisions that God didn't want us to make? Yes, absolutely. And when you're caught up in this performance-based faith, those disappoint or those those decisions you made that you know are decisions God didn't want you to make, you will feel like a disappointment. In other words, your failures will feel a little bit more final. And you'll start to align your identity with the mistakes that you've made. And I'm here to tell you this morning that you are not a sum of your past mistakes. You are not a sum of your past mistakes. And let me say this maybe to someone that clearly needs to hear that this morning, you are not a disappointment to God. You are not a disappointment to God. God is going to come and live in you if you will give him your life. And maybe somebody in here today has not yet made that decision, but if you will, God is going to come and take residence in your life to help you to navigate through the weeds of your own mistakes and failures and show you that in his hands, they can be reshaped as growth. I would tell you that I'm in ministry today because of some major failures in my personal life and in the business life. And God has used those to reshape me into a different direction. Now, does that mean we all need to go out and you know, have a lot of failures so God will do something awesome in our future? No, that's called being an idiot. But let me remind you of the promise of Romans chapter eight that he'll use all things for good if you love him, if you follow him according to his will and his purpose. He came to do life with you, with you. He doesn't want you to perform for him. He wants you to do life with him. And you don't have to behave before you can belong to Jesus. Jesus already accomplished everything that you needed so that you could have a relationship with him. Church, God loves, God loves you so much that he did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And when you fully understand that, like fully understand that, you will go from pressure to peace. You will go from this feeling of performing for God to a new purpose doing life with God. He came to die for you. 
so that he could live within you. And that life with God is a yoke that is easy and it's a burden that should be light. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. God, I pray that through the words that you have led me to speak, that you would help us begin to uproot some of the leanings of legalism in our own lives. I would guess that not many of us, if any of us, have put those there intentionally, but something that we probably, something, some kind of seed that was sown in our spirit along the way. And so, God, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit that is in us, thank you, that it would uproot those seeds of legalism. God, if we're caught up in performing for you, God, help us to be reminded this morning that you just want us to do life with you. So, Father, I pray that you would meet us in this next, these next few moments of response time and help us to do some necessary work. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.